which is where Mary has appeared many times. And so it's a shrine and a site. And if you can imagine uh, the roads of Walsingham as being um, a little like Hobbit village with cobblestones. And we walked down these aisles, and everywhere I looked, it was like beautiful and calm and surreal. And there were these mountains with mountains, hills, hills with um, beautiful sheep. And I was loving it. And they sent me out. And as you know, I get lost very easily. So within a short amount of time, I'm roaming down these streets, I'm praising the Lord, I'm with God, and I'm lost completely. And I don't know if you've ever had those moments, right? You're like, you're doing it right. You're in your zone, and all of a sudden you kind of lose your footing, you feel insecure. I had a talk to give just a short, um, a couple minutes later. I knew I had to get there, so my anxiety was filling, and I had nowhere to go. And every street I went down, it was like a dead end. Like every street I went, I, and I was getting more frustrated, and I got to this moment where I'm like, I'm going to miss my talk, this is not going well, well, why did anyone leave me alone? And I eventually came up to this sign, and I'll never forget it because the Lord really spoke to me, and as I was praying about today, I felt like this was the story to unleash us into God. I walked up to the sign, and it was a map of Walsingham, like an old map, kind of like written, and I was trying to find, and again, I, I'm trying to read this map, I'm, I'm anxious, and there was all these different places to go, and I'm trying to figure out how to get to where I need to go, and, and God moves me to the map to one spot. And there was a little home on it, a little spot where a building was, and there was, someone had written very clearly the word home. And as I sat there, I felt like the Lord right there in that moment was like, Mary, you are trying to get someplace. You are trying to find your way you're trying to get the answers. Like, some of you all know this feeling. Like, I want my husband. I want my career. I want my life figured out. I want my dreams to be fulfilled. Where do I go? What's the next step that I need to do? I have anxiety. I have insecurity. I don't know the answer. And you go to adoration every week, and you're like, God, come on, Jesus. I've been here before, right? We have these moments. We ache. We long. We have a destiny, and we're trying to get there. And sometimes we don't know how. And in the midst of that, Sometimes we look out to go a place where God's asking us to go where we started. God's asking us to go to the fundamentals of who we are and whose we are. Because everything starts there. And if we don't have the first step to the road map, right, we can go a whole bunch of different directions and still remain in that whole place of being lost. Today, as I enter into this whole identity, the story of our identity, it is the place of home. It is the place that as we venture out today, I would dare say the most fundamental place of your whole Christian walk. That without this central piece of home, of abiding in who God is, of staying in our identity, we can go many, many roads and many, many places and always feel lost. We see this in Scripture. Jesus comes bouncing with some bad, amazing miracles. I was going to use another word. Some amazing miracles, right, coming on the street, and there's a moment that he has to go. And they all are kind of worried, like, wait, Jesus, don't leave me. And he says, no, I'm going to send you an advocate. And he's going to make your, his, listen to the words, his home in you. There is a relationship that I want to venture in today. And as I was praying, I want to be honest, I was like, Lord, they've heard this message. They've heard that you love them. They've heard this and this, and God's like, no, no, no. They need to go deeper into this place. 
This image on the, I don't know if you see a screen, some screens are a little bit darker than others. The image that we're going to be meditating on today as I, as I walk you through is the image of the prodigal son. It's the image of us resting our head on the father's chest. It's the image of being secure and a God that calls you by name. And for me in my journey, I have wrestled. This week, I've wrestled with my lies. And I see a church right now wrestling, trying to run out and get the answers and to solve the problem instead of abiding in the one who is the answer. Amen? That was good. That was like a tweet, that was like a tweet right there. <laughs> right? I'm going to give some prophetic words. And it's, it's what we wrestle. It's, what I, it's my story. I was just telling my friend, it's amazing how I'm called to minister to the very place of my brokenness. I'm going to share a little bit of my story because I feel like God wants to awaken us to, to just encourage us to be the children that he's called us to be. And as I do that today, I love being at this conference particularly because the movements of the three sessions as we talk about beloved, um, endowed, and becoming, it's really the entire gospel message that we're breaking open in a day. You're welcome, right? Because I think oftentimes when we talk, when I, when I do this today, I love this message because I want to do a couple things as I, as I go into identity, as I talk about what that means, what that looks like. Um, I want to talk about a big picture identity of what early Israel would understand that to be because oftentimes the way we speak about the gospel, you guys got to get this, it's, it's good, but it's not the fullness. There is more. There's more to what the gospel is calling you to, more in the transformation that God's inviting you into. So I want to start with the big picture of the identity of Israel, the big story that we're entering into, and then I want to move into your personal story and then go into identity. That's the framework of where we go. But before I start, as I go into, we have a lot to go through. Who can tell me, we're in class, what is the good news of the gospel? What is it? Christ is risen. Awesome. Good thing is that you get no wrong answers. And because we're in class, if you guys can snap, it's so much cooler than clapping. Snap. Snap. Good answer. I work with teenagers, so we're, we always snap. Awesome. What else? What else is the good news? If someone said, tell me the good news. Yes, sir. Jesus paid the debt of our sins. Snap that up. That's the right answer. Good job. Good job. Who else? You guys are freedom. Freedom. Yes. Freedom. Snap that out. Love it. Anyone else? Yes, the back. We get to share. She's good. You guys in Columbus. We get to share in his inheritance. Yes. All those. You're ahead of the curve here. Um, normally when I give that answer, so we're going to go into some of those answers because that's actually a more full picture. Normally when I do this, people say the basic gospel, Jesus died for our sins, one day we're going to get to heaven, and we just got to struggle and kind of make it through today. And um, part of that is true. When Jesus comes on the stage, when he comes into Mark's gospel, right, I always kind of think in, in storylines, so he busts in, and, and Mark 1.5, he says the kingdom, he says this, Oh, he starts to, I come here to proclaim the good news, and the statement is this, for the kingdom of God is at hand, right? But right away, Jesus comes on the scene and says that the good news of the gospel is actually the kingdom reign of God. Now, being an early Israelite, being a Jew, and hearing this whole idea, we have to give an understanding of this, that the early church understood that the coming of the Messiah, right, the waiting of hope and the longing of the janked up, that's my technical word, for all the sin and destruction and aches and loneliness of our life, all the sin and corruption, that one day there would be a promise of a king. And this king would open up and, and begin, inaugurate, right? Begin and open the coming of a new kingdom. And under this new king would be a new reign. 
where all sin and destruction and pain would be reconciled, all the exile that the earlier Israelites experienced with, with Babylon, with Assyria, their whole culture was shattered. And, they wanted, and the hope was this new king would gather them into one. The, uh, there was a great author called N.T. Wright that says this. He talks that um, not only that the kingdom would come, but the, the beautiful part about the story is that God would reign, but he would call a people. This is where it's really important about you guys as we talk about becoming. That's where we're going to go today. He would call a people, um, and the Jewish word would, which would have tikkum alam, the Jewish word that it's called, that would participate in repairing the world. They would be a light to the nations. They would be a people set on a hill. They would come with prophetic gifts and knowledge. They would be a witness and actually participate in the kingdom reign to bring about the new creation of heaven and earth. That's exciting, y'all. That means there's a mission that you guys have to get to. That's what we're going to get to at the end of the day. But in order for us to do this mission, it's not just about behaviors. It's not just about sin management. We live in a culture right now that talks about church as about behaviors and doing and fixing. But the early church understood of a new reign that there, the, there would be a, our hearts would actually be pierced and transformed from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. That we'd be circumcised. That we'd be, the early church fathers called it theosis. The transformation of us into the divine. Also called as divinization. That's some big theological words, Miss Mary Bielski. Yes. St. Anth- uh, Athanasius often said, God became man so that man can, can become more like God. What I mean by that is we're not becoming God in our nature. We're becoming like God through the grace bestowed in us through the Holy Spirit. That we can manifest him. That we can move like him. In other words, in a very simple way that I teach young people, God did not come to earth right, so that we'd only get to heaven. The goal of the gospel is not just for us to get to heaven, but for heaven to get into us. The reality of the reign of God to reign in our hearts so we look like him, so we act like him, so we move like him, so we have his thoughts and his behaviors and his movements that nothing stifles us because we're God's kids. And when God's kids reign, the king is here. When Jesus steps on the ground, he says the kingdom of God reigns. That means the peace of heaven, the prophecy of heaven, the power of heaven reigns here. And we, as his partakers, as his king's kids, get a little taste of that. And that's some good news, people. Can I get a little amen? Come on now, I know we're Catholics. Come on, this is good preaching here. Come on, right? That we get the taste of that. I see so much in our church that we're, we think of the gospel as like, we're all the caterpillars kind of just roaming around and taping. Like, we're just going to tape on some good, like, theological words. And we're going to learn about the new evangelization. And we're going to get our little brains on. And we're going to act a part. And we're just these kind of caterpillars trying to sew on ourselves some wings. But true transformation, in fact, in the Greek, St. Paul uses the Greek word. This is really important when he talks about this. He uses the Greek word that is metamorphous. It's, the Greek is metamorpho. But it's the same word that we see actually as a caterpillar changing into a new creation. That something inside of us changes by the grace of the Holy Spirit. When we are baptized, we enter in and something changes within us from slaves to sons. And in that, we come to encounter who our Father is. Pope Francis says it like this, in case you're thinking. He says, you can follow a thousand catechism courses, a thousand spiritual courses, a thousand yoga and Zen courses of all these things, but none of this will be able to give you the freedom as a child of God.
Only the Holy Spirit can open our hearts to the love of God. Only the Holy Spirit can prompt your heart to say, Father. It goes on, we know this from Galatians 4, right? Because you are my sons, God sent the Spirit of the Son into my heart so that I might cry, Abba, Father. The beauty of the gospel message is we get to go home. We get to taste a relationship with a God that transforms us. And I've struggled my whole life with my worth, with my insecurity, with the lies that I felt. And this journey for me to come home has been my journey, and it's the journey of our church. And it's the central part that we're missing sometimes because we're so about doing and not beholding and becoming and restoring in his grace. And I feel like God wants to awaken us today into a deeper place where you know Papa loves you. And I don't mean that, you know, I was up, I was like, Lord, they know this. Tell them again. So as we enter into that story, like, um, I love that we understand the story of Israel, but it's personal. The gospel message, you know, it's personal. It's a personal invitation. I've been fascinated with the whole understanding of story in my life. Riveted with the culture that we live in, in the Trump, okay, I know I said, this, I said a political word, but in the world that we live in, the stories and the narratives that are coming across our TV screens. Amen? It's fascinating. The stories that people are saying about our culture, we have one person saying one thing and another person saying something completely different, and I don't understand how these narratives can be conflicting and moving. There's power in story. We know this even by the stories that compel us. Some of us, my roommate every night stays up late listening. She goes to sleep to, um, uh, not Lord of the Rings, to Harry Potter every night. And she, like, loves Harry Potter. Some of us are obsessed with Lord of the Rings and these stories that have characters, antagonists, protagonists, people that move us. There's something about story, even when you're with your family members. You all have family that you sit around and you tell old stories of when your sister did this and your uncle did this and it was weird and great. And you laugh. We are eminently storytellers. We're wired this way. There's a great author called Kurt Thomas who talks about um, that even from our very beginning as children, we're wired for story. We don't just learn bad or good. We understanding the context of, I, I saw my sister recently with my niece and nephew, and she was like, not just don't hit. She was like, don't hit, because mommy doesn't like that. And she starts telling this whole story just in one simple action. We're wired for story. Um, I think that we're compelled to story in many ways because we, we're longing for our own story, and specifically our own identity as we look into this group. This age group, more than any age group, not to point you all out, but the millennials, Z-Gen. Sorry, I don't know if you're millennials or Jesus. I mean, anyway, my point is, um, there's a huge identity crisis. And as we look outside of ourselves, whether it's in gender, identity, and, and, and politics, and ourself, seeking to find that place of home. Uh, an author says this, man is eminently a storyteller. He searches for a purpose, a cause, an ideal, a mission, a plot, and a pattern in the development of his life story. I love that. Um, I love that because I, I think it's really interesting as I enter into a little bit of the identity piece, I am going to go into stories of how we kind of cultivate that identity, but my question as we begin is to know, what's your story? Wait, time out, Mary, Mary Bielski. Have you seen my resume? Well, I have done a lot of great things in my life. I've had a couple boyfriends, girlfriends. Uh, I do well at school. No, I mean, like, what's the story that you tell yourself about who you are? What's the story beneath the story? I work in some mentoring and coaching. 
Um, I do that on the side, and I was just mentoring a young woman just this week. It was fascinating how God works in the realm that I'm about to preach in. And she said to me, one of our goals in mentoring is she said to me, um, I want to own my story. And I said, this this week. I said, well, what, do you, what does that mean, own your story? She said, I want to tell all the details of my life without crying. I want to go into it, because she's, she's got some stuff. She's like all of us. Amen? Amen. And so she starts telling me, I want to look at these pieces of my life and my brokenness and my fear, my insecurity, not having my act together, or even my pride and my sin, which I condemn myself for. And I want something else, because all this story is leading me to is shame, fear, anxiety, and I don't know how to break free. You all know what I'm talking about? And this primarily is the gospel message. I came for freedom. It is for freedom in Galatians 5.1 that I have set you free. Freedom to walk in my ways, to know my ways. And I sat there in this beautiful pause, like the pregnant pause that every good mentor knows how to do. And I asked her about her story. And then I said this, what does God say about your story? See, we don't look through the lens of the lens that we, we need. God doesn't see our story in our brokenness. God sees it through the eyes of a heavenly father that calls you by name. And he sees you through the victory of his son. And he sees you through the prophetic call in your life and the destiny in your life and the hope that you bestow by walking in him. And we're not wearing his glasses. We don't see as he sees. We don't know as he knows. And I asked this simple question at the end of our whole session. I said, do you believe that God loves you? Like, really believe it. And her first answer right away, because she's a good 20-something-year-old, just like many of you here. Yeah, I, I know he loves me. Two days later, I get a text. Mary, I have not stopped thinking about that question. Do I know God loves me? It's haunted me for two days. I don't think I gave you the right answer. And I think, as I enter in today, if I'm honest with us, if we're all honest with really looking at the stories we tell about ourselves, we're getting dressed in the morning and the fear in our relationships and the things that cripple us, many of us might know in our head the Father's love, but don't know it intrinsically in our heart. There's a knowing that comes from abiding in relationship that's different than intellectual knowing. When, the Greek, when you look at the Hebrew and the understanding, when the God is talking about the knowledge of God, it's an experiential knowledge. I just did this week a, a bridal shower. I, I led a bridal shower at my house. I don't cook, so it was a miracle that it happened. And um, pulled in all my friends to do a potluck, little bridal shower. I was anxious about the whole thing. I had to do the games and all that stuff. I'm like, Lord Jesus. And, um, but in the end, it was great because we sat there, and one of my games was I was interviewing her, her future fiancé. And what was so beautiful was to see these two people who knew each other. And as she was sharing the stories, I would t- this is the game, like you tell certain, certain situations, like what would your spouse do if this and this happened? Or who was the first one to say I love you? And you ask these kind of fun, nuanced like, questions and everyone laughs and it's great. But what we saw in this beautiful love story was, was that she knew him. Everyone in the room as they talked, it was like, this is what he would do, because this is my experience of his heart. And it was like unfolding not just a knowledge of him, like a resume, but something where she knew that no matter what, this is how... She actually used the exact words when I asked her a question about how he would respond. It was verbatim. There was a knowing in his heart. And this is the knowing that I'm talking about with the father. Well, you know the nature of who your papa is, because you've seen him show up day after day. 
A knowing that just goes beyond just like, I know God loves me, but you've seen his faithfulness. And you see him call you by name. And you sit in prayer every day and you hear him speak over the words of promise in your life. And that doesn't come from just going to a talk. We want fast answers in our church. And as someone who has labored, y'all, labored in my own stuff and fought the battles of the resurrection and kind of in it to win it, I want the fullness of the gospel. Like, it's a labor to sit and catch what he has for you. And, our, and, and that's what I want to invite you into today, to shift, to say, God, I want me, I, like, I, if I leave today and you're like, you leave hungry? If you leave this conference, listen to me, not fixed, not having your answers or your boyfriend or your future job, but having a hunger to know God, to see him and to know him in a deeper reality than we have won today. Because he needs a people hungering for his heart, for those who seek, find. Right? Doors that knock get opened because our Father's already running after you. As we start today, I haven't even gotten to my message, y'all. It's going to be great. Just hang with me. Let's go. Just buckle in, right? Um, I want to talk a little bit about identity and how that's formed. In a real sense, um, uh, many times when I teach young people, so I do theology, the body camps, and various things, is that we live in a culture that very much, and you'll get this as good upstanding Americans, that we, we very much focus on our doing. So if I asked you, who are you, many of you would, like, right away, I am a daughter of this family. I do this in my work. You would, you would say the doing behaviors. And oftentimes, those in our own practice, that becomes associated with who we are. And that's why so many times we get crushed in our lives when things get kind of shot in the doing realm, when things don't turn out because... They're not centered in the right place. And so what I teach is a simple model. It's called RIM, R-I-M. Relationship leads to identity, which leads to mission. I'll do this again. I'm going to walk you through this real quick, this model of identity. Relationship, which leads to identity, which leads to mission. Many times in our church, we're focused on mission, which is a great thing. We, We look at, I want to be a good Catholic, so therefore I must do the behaviors so that I have more of a relationship, so that I'm loved. See the opposite? We even see it in culture, right? The culture, so in another way of saying it, if you're taking notes, is I am, so I have, this is the middle, and therefore I can do. And within our culture, we see this framework with, with you do, right? You get up, you, you, I pay my taxes. I'm a good person. I'm upstanding. I'm not doing that and that and that, right? We're here on a good Saturday. You guys are good upstanding citizens of the United States, right? I'm a good person. I do this. I work hard. And so because I do these behaviors, because I fit in the box of what the Catholic Church says, and I'm, I'm going to confession, and even if I don't, I'm trying. And so because I, I, I do, I have. I have, a, I have friends. I have a good reputation. I have a good resume. I have things in my life that make a difference. I am. I, I have stuff. And because I have, I am. I, I have meaning. I I'm someone, right? But the problem with that model, right, is that all these places of doing and having can get ripped in a split second of our lives. I've had family members who have passed away. We've had people that have had an illness that you can't work and do the same things. We've had transitions in our life. And so if our identity is based on all these exterior things, we can get shipwrecked in a, in a hot second because we don't have the foundation. Those of you who know philosophy know this whole understanding that when you teach philosophy and you have an argument in philosophy, you actually have to have first principles. Meaning before you can even stack and talk about all these ideas, you have to have the foundation sound. And for here today, our foundation is only found in relationship, 
with a father that calls you by name. This is why St. Paul could sit in a prison. Hear me all. He could sit in a prison, beaten and shipwrecked, and sing hallelujah, broken and alone, because he knew his dad. That despite our circumstances and our poverty, despite what boyfriend who has seen us or not seen us, or parents who have not been there or there, despite our financial situation, what happened in our past and the sins that haunt us at night, beyond the fears of our future and the crippling things that, that encompass all of us here. I work, y'all, I work in ministry. People are hemorrhaging because they don't know who they are. We have a whole culture, culture of people in our church who are orphans, trying to do the behaviors, trying to earn the love, trying to become the thing instead of sitting in the place right at home with the Father who calls you. you and this is the beginning, you don't have to earn it at one, at one bit. And St. Paul, in his brokenness, could stand and sing the hallelujah that echoed and reverberated through the, the, the prison walls. It's the joy that surpasses understanding. And it's because you know who your daddy is. Relationship is found. I, I dated a fella in college. I dated some fellas. He's not the only one I've dated. But um, I dated a guy once in college, and when we broke up, he said this. Um, it kind of threw me. He said, I need to go to the mountains and find myself. And I found this fascinating. I was like, well, that's a good excuse for you why you don't want to date me. But on a deeper level, right, like, I have to go to the mountains. I find it very provocative. Like, I have to go to the mountains and, um, and kind of find who I am. And I think sometimes in our culture we have that mentality. We're, we're hungering, just like that person I mentored. We're hungering to know who we are. We're hungering for someone to give us a name, to give us a meaning, to, let, to see our significance. And so many times we think we have to find it by looking down. Who am I? What do I like? What are the things I have? Like our whole culture is saying, go, go, go sit in a room and try things out and discover and, and create your identity. And here's the truth of the gospel. Your identity is not something that is earned or created. It is something that is received and bestowed. It is the gift of the Father's voice that calls you by name. We see this modeled in the gospel with, with Jesus. He comes into the baptism of the Jordan, and the, crowds are, the clouds are ripped open. And as he stands, the Father speaks over him, bestowing on him his identity. This is a very central piece. Saying, this is my beloved son, to whom I'm well pleased. As he stood there, right, and maybe you can imagine yourself in the waters yourself. Maybe you can put yourself in that vision of being baptized with Jesus, dying in him and rising in him, and hearing the Father call you by name. With all your weirdness, all your kind of patterns that you love, like that place where he sees and calls you, that's where you receive your identity. We see this modeled in our human life. The beauty of the supernatural world, or the supernatural life, is that it mirrors the natural and vice versa. So things that we understand in the natural is mirrored in the supernatural. Let me give you an example in this specific situation. Children gain and receive their identity from their parents in some degree. Let me explain. Some of you are like, I am not my mama. I am not my father. Do not make it like this. But we see this with their development. And this is why we're seeing a lot of confusion right now in our culture where we're having kids just go off and tell you who they are. What do you feel like today? We see this with an alum. I'm, I'm trying to be delicate because these are delicate topics. But we see that within our culture that what you feel, the kid decides for themselves what they feel, what they know, instead of actually receiving and growing into who they are. It's a process, a development. God designed it that way. From glory to glory, we step into our identity. 
from one crucifixion and one resurrection, we grow into him. It's a process of becoming. We don't just come out, I give my life to Jesus, I'm there. There's a process where we one by one die and rise and conform ourselves to a God who calls us by name. And every test and every obstacle, we say yes and amen, we fall and we rise, and that's the journey of sanctification. And we live in a culture that wants it easy, we want it fast, we don't want the process, But in the natural realm, there's a process. We see that with our little kids. And then the documents of the church actually talk about this. This is where I get geeked out because I'm kind of nerdy. But in the early documents of the church, it talks about this. This is in um, St. Paul II and the Apostolic Exhortation of the Christian Family says this. Our first experience of relationship with our parents sets the tone for our future relationships, including God. He goes on to say this. This is really important as we talk. When they become... When your parents... when you two become upstanding adults and become parents, uh, the spouses receive the gift from God of a new responsibility. Listen to this. Their parental role and their parental love is called to become, for their children, a visible sign of the very love of God. That when a parent draws out, right, those first images, I saw this with Monica yesterday. She was playing um, with Felicity, her little girl. There's a place where... You find yourself in the gaze of a lover from a parent or, or even in a relationship. It's, it's from receiving in relationship where we see ourselves being reflected back at ourselves. We see this with little children, right? They're stumbling and they're falling and they're trying to figure it out. And mom and dad is like, you're doing okay. You're good. You're just where you need. It's called mirroring. Those of us who have done counseling work, it's a mirroring where you mirror back to the children what you see. And the child receives that and they grow into who they're called to be. That's a process that's very important. Attachment theory. This is like psychological one, psychology 101. But it's mirrored in the supernatural. As the father, right, mirrors to us who he sees. Behold my beloved son or daughter whom I'm well pleased. And yesterday I saw this so beautifully. We were playing in the playground. And little Felicity was going up the ladder, right? And I heard Monica. and almost made me cry, girl. She was standing there. She says, she's so strong. You're so strong. You're so strong. Over and over. I see this girl climb. You're so strong. You're so strong. This is who you are. And as we hear it, as we bestow in it, as we hear the words of Christ speaking over us, we walk and we grow into our identities as beloved. That's the process that it becomes. And many times, because of our own parents, and I'm not here doing, let's go talk about our parents and mom and dad, but I will say this, working with people and mentoring with people, many, many of those fundamental relationships were things, I'm not even talking about trauma. I'm talking about oftentimes there's a lack. It's not because of what has been done, but maybe what was not done was not seen, what was not encouraged, that sometimes we don't have that sense of security. And this is the beauty of God, is that he wants to restore that. Christ comes to reveal the face of the Father. And I don't know what your relationship is with your earthly father. Some of you maybe are best friends with your dad. I just ministered to a young lady. She's like, my dad is my best friend. We talk all the time, and that's amazing and a gift from God. Some of you right here in this room, I don't know if you felt your parents' delight in you. That place, and I mean delight, like not just your grades, not just your report card. I mean walk in the room and you feel them light up because you're here. It's a delighting that actually has an emotional response, an affection towards you. God actually doesn't just love you. There's an affection towards you. That means in your poverty and in your weakness, like he actually likes you. You're like, me? All of you. And sometimes the weakest parts of you are the ones that make him draw even closer. Because you need him. And those are the very places that we reject him the most. 
And in the midst of us not knowing who we are, we often go out just like the prodigal son, running off to all the different places. And I want to just, in my own story, that has been in the beginning years, and many of us have had an initial conversion. I had my conversion when I was in my 20s, in college. Radical conversion, was doing the party scene, and um, encountered a Carmelite nun who was alive and knew who she was in Christ, and I was blown away. I was 20-something, struggled with depression since I was in eighth grade. Still struggle with my stuff going on sometimes, and God has to remind me to remember and stand in that position. And I met this woman, and there was another young lady who was discerning religious life, comes into my room sobbing, like, I want to give my life to Jesus, I want to give him everything, and I didn't even have a relationship with God at that point. And as she, as she professed her love for God, like, tears came down my face, and I remember leaving that retreat or that event at that moment saying, like, God, I want to know you like that. I want to have an intimate relationship where I can hear your voice and I can, I can walk with you in an intimacy. And many of us, right, there's a prodigal son in us in many different ways. Some of us, like you're here on a Saturday, so many of us are like, Mary, I'm actually at this retreat, so I'm really not the prodigal son. But Henry, thank you for laughing at that. <laughs> Henry, thank you for one honest person in this room. Dear God, people, you're all pagans and liars, right? No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. No, but... But it's true, like, but in some ways, but here's the truth, right? We, we can become prodigal sons, and some of us, maybe you're, that's not your experience. I mean, for me, um, like, I was the prodigal son. I kind of drew my relationship, but then I just became the elderly brother. Henry Nouwen says this, anyone who looks for unconditional love in a place that it is not, cannot be found is the prodigal son. Any, we'll say this again, anyone who looks for unconditional love in a place where it cannot be found is a prodigal son. When we look to our jobs or other people, we look for our career. I'm not saying those aren't good things, but they can't sustain us and they certainly can't fulfill us and they can't fill the void that only God can fill. And so where do you find your place acting like a prodigal? God wrecked me a couple years ago because he told me I was enslaved to my ministry. You can actually be a prodigal trying to do the right things like the elderly brother. I was enslaved how many gigs I had, what people thought of me when I spoke, how you guys liked me or didn't like me. Even the good things, when disordered, could be a place of slavery if not totally relinquished to God. And it takes, what I want to invite you in today, because some of this stuff maybe you've heard, but it takes to be honest to yourself and to the Lord to say, God, I need you to help me here. And sometimes in those places where we look to other things, whether it's food, don't know where that came from, some of y'all are numbing out with Netflix and food. I feel like there's someone in this room right now. You look to the muffin. It's kind of a joke, but it's a real reality when you feel enslaved to it. Letting God pierce your heart to say, God, I can't do this without you. And there's a moment where the prodigal son comes home. And in my life, I've had many prodigal moments. In high school, I got arrested for shoplifting. Pause. I used to sell drugs for, as well, so I've kind of had a past. Don't Legally, I was a pharmaceutical sales rep. Side note. But, um, <laughs> you're so funny. I know. Um, so I was a prodigal sales rep, too, but I also, so I always joke that I used to sell drugs, and I used to get a, you know, go to prison and all this. Anyway, side note. But I did. I got, I, in high school, my family, I was the youngest of five kids, and my, um, and because my family struggled financially, or we were, we were blessed as well, but there was always pressure, I, I shoplifted and I got caught. 
And I don't know, I always think of the prodigal, those of us who know the story of the prodigal son, there's two sons, and, and the story is very scandalous if you understand the Jewish culture of the prodigal son. Because in the Jewish culture, they had a paralleling story in their Talmud and their, in their book as well, talking about the same story in which the son disobeyed, shamed his father, and his father shunned him. So within that culture, the very understanding of that story, it's like, oh yeah, I've heard that story. Right? We have these within our own culture, like the happy ever after. Oh, right, we know how it should end. That's how it should end. The, she finds the, the man to get the ring. That's how it, the story should end. It's a cultural story. Within the Jewish tradition, there was a cultural story. If you shun your father, if you disrespect your father in that way, you were deserving to be cut off completely. This was like ingrained in them. And so the, 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 the shock. Y'all, we, we hear the gospel story. How many times have we heard the prodigal son and we're like, oh yeah, the loving father, I get it. It was scandalous at the time. For a father to run was a very dignified culture. Fathers didn't run. They didn't run out to a field, especially after a son totally turned and disrespected their family name. So to hear that, it was, it was radical. Like radical to their lives. The gospel should shock us. It should bring us to our knees. That he could love us in our, in our stuff. And in our poverty, there's moments in my life that God brings me to my knees to say, God, I cannot do this. Like, I, need to, I cannot reach for this friendship or this potential marriage or, or my longing. Like, I need you because I can't. Anyone, anyone get there? Yes? And there's these beautiful stories because we oftentimes think, that, think like the, the Jewish culture, that the, he's going to shun us or hurt us or he's going to be like our dads. And maybe you had an amazing dad. I had a wonderful father. But in many places, being the youngest, I was missed. We had a busy household. We were moving a million directions. And oftentimes, even though we were doing the right things, that place of home, that place of security where I know and I know that I know that my name and his is in, that my name and my heart is in his heart at all moments, wasn't always there. And so I remember the moment where I got caught shoplifting. And I don't know if you ever had these moments where you know you're in deep doo-doo. Like, like, I knew that I knew because I was living two lifestyles. And I want to speak this to this room. I believe there are people in this room that are living two lifestyles. That you are here, and God bless you for being here, because God is going to do something mighty today. Mighty to change your heart. But there are things that you're doing at home, whether it's an addiction to pornography, whether it's fear-based behavior, whether it's a compulsion, or just even the way you behave with your friends that God wants to bring light to today. And it doesn't want to do it in a way that's going to condemn you. It's going to do it in a place that brings you to mercy. And in that moment, I drove home. And I remember thinking, God, like, they called my father. I stood at the little plate, the, the room that they had me in. I was scared, crapless. And, excuse my language, but I was. And I, he came, and I remembered God just shoot me like I don't want to see him. And so we didn't say a word. I got in the car, because he got me out. And I got in the car. We stayed in silence. We drove home in silence for, for like, the whole ride home. He said one thing. Why did you do it? And as a you know, teenager girl, I was 16 at the time, just said, I don't know. I didn't know. And then we went home, and, um, and as I got home, I don't know, it was like that moment where I realized that my, my charade was up. That God, see, the biggest fear that we have is not necessarily of, of failing in some ways is that someone would see us fail or someone would see our weakness or someone would see our poverty. We do a great job with our Instagram feeds to hide it really well. 
And if we're really honest with ourselves and the dances that we do and the way that we try to seek approval in our fear-based culture that we live in, it's scary to let someone see our brokenness because the deepest fear of our heart is that we'll be rejected. And in this place where my father comes in the room, I had believed the fact that there's no way my dad could possibly love me again. Because in those conversations, it unfolded the person that I was. Still going to youth group, still going to these events, just like y'all. I am not here to say that this story is not for us. And in this moment, my dad, he was so great. I stayed in my room for three days. I was super depressed. I kind of had this come-to-Jesus moment, like, just like the prodigal son. My dad asked me to help. Um, uh, he's a good dad. So he was like, okay, so I was really sad. I... Um, I was just really struggling with my story. And my dad invited me to come paint the, the bedroom of the, the guest bedroom. We had two, like, mirroring bedrooms. And so when Daddy asked you to do stuff in your deep duty, you're like, yes, sir. So I helped without saying a word, and we had, like, Christian music playing in the background because my dad did that, and he was in the church. And we didn't say a word. I was just aching, and, and I felt so, so low. And we were painting, and my dad, in his wisdom, said this. He said, go downstairs and get me a glass of water. Yes, sir. So I go downstairs. I'll never forget this moment. I walk up and remember the state that I'm in, that my dad could not love me, that I was shown up for the person that I am. And in this moment, I walked in the room, and my dad, he wasn't in the room. He had walked away, had written with the dark paint. We had dark paint. We were painting it like a darker moon. Across this 17-foot wall, it said, I love you, Mary. And I walked in, it was like stark, like the whole room's empty, and there's just across this huge wall is just dripping paint of my name and my dad's profession of his love. And this little 16-year-old girl just started weeping. Because I couldn't imagine my dad still could love me like that. I couldn't imagine with all my... And here's the deal, the beauty of the gospel message. Some of you are like, that, you have a really great dad. My dad would not paint I love you after I got arrested across the wall. Like, good for you, Mary. That's not my father. Good, you've got a good one, right? But the reality is that your earthly father is not the reflection of the heavenly father. The heavenly father is the perfection of your father. And he calls you by name. And he speaks over you when you sleep. And he draws out all your weakness. And he's not afraid of it. And he just draws you closer. And he writes that which is some paint to say, I love you, uh, Jeff, or I love you, Krista, and I love you, Chris. Like, he, he takes the blood of his son. He crucifies his son. He takes his blood and says, I love you so much. And he calls you by name. There's an invitation there that's personal. It's an invitation where we get changed and wrecked by his love for us. When we sit in the chapel and you're like, how could you possibly love me? Y'all, I can't spell. I'm late all the time. I'm imperfect. I struggle just like everybody else. And yet I hear the Father's voice. It changes us. We have to know the difference between the Father's voice and the enemy's voice. We have to know the real story that God's inviting you into. See, what the enemy tries to do is he tries to go after the Father himself. St. Paul the second says this. And I'm going to talk about... Um, We see this scene in the garden. I want to just, really important, as you understand where you struggle with being loved, we're going to go into prayer in a little bit. Um, Where you struggle with being loved is 
We have to remember, sorry, I lost my train. We have to remember where the, where the enemy comes to get us right after the baptism of Jesus, right? Jesus bestows and receives his identity as the beloved, and he goes right after into the wilderness. I've been loving this side very much. I'm sorry I've neglected you. And he goes off into the wilderness, and right away you see the enemy attacking him in his core identity, right? The enemy tempts him in three ways. And the first thing he says is, if you are the son of God, if you are loved, if you are his child, then do this and do this. We see this in the garden, right? The enemy comes right away. And what does he say? If you eat the fruit, you will become, if you do, just like this model, if you do, if you do certain things, then you'll become, then you'll become more like God. The enemy is trying to go right after your identity as being the beloved. If you do this, then you do this, then you do this. But the truth of, in the garden, Eve and Adam were already made in the image of the Father. Were they not? They were already beloved sons. So the core of what the enemy tries to do is move us away in different ways from our core identity. To pull us away from relationship. Uh, Pope John Paul II says this, Original sin attempts then, in its very nature, to abolish fatherhood destroying its rays which permeate the created world, placing in doubt the truth about God who is love and leaves man only with a sense of mastery-slave relationship. We see this with the slave. So, so that means maybe some of you are the prodigal son and some of us maybe still are the elderly brother. Still questioning. So that master-slave relationship is really key. We could be slaves to certain sins in our world. I talked about that. Some of us maybe have those mentalities, but we can also be in the church doing the right things and still be living in slave mentality. Like, I worked in, I've been working in ministry for 20 years. And I see a church, right, trying to earn our way into the Father's heart. And we're bitter. And we're hurt. Why, where's my place, Father? Where's my attractive husband? Where's my, where's my story? All my friends get this. All my journey is this. And they don't realize that the Father has already bestowed on you the entire kingdom. We see this with the elderly brother, right? Who comes home and is angry, seeing all the blessings of the world, but who's forgotten his own Father. And some of us, even in the church, can be in the house of the church, can be doing the worship of the church, but is not home in the Father's embrace. And that's the invitation. I got wrecked uh, last year. I went to a, a conference, and I was literally wrecked because I had experienced the poverty of the, the prodigal son, I thought I was doing it right, and God just wrecked me into the place that I was still working out of behaviors, trying to earn his love, trying to make my ministry my way of, of showing my worth. And as I was laying there amongst 25, it was a big conference, weeping, I said, God, I want to come home. Many of us in that, product, in, that, in, that, in that whole nature, we're going to have, I don't know if we have our musician here. Do we have a musician here? I love you. I, um, I don't know if you've seen the, the, the movie Orphan Annie. You all see that movie? I love this scene, and this is when I want to end with a scene, because it, it's, we're going to move out of the scene, but there's a scene when she ends, and I love it because she walks into the kingdom... And I don't know if you've seen the scene. She has her little dog. And she, where's Toto? Right? That's her dog? 
Toto, is it? No. That's, that's Wizard of Oz. What's her dog's name? Sandy. She walks, thank you, Jesus. So she walks in with Sandy, and she's wearing her little rags. You all know this scene? And this is the transformation. And the, she's seeing the kingdom of God that's offered to us. This is the weekend that God's inviting us to. And she sees the whole, and the music comes on, and all the little, like, all the people come into the, the realm, and, like, servants, and, like, they're all trying to serve her. And she walks in, and she, the music slows. It's like this whole scene. And she reaches into a bucket. And she says, first the windows, then the floor, then I'll do this. And the woman, who I think is like the Marian, I'm always like seeing everything through theological eyes. I'm like, she's the blessed mother, right? She's like, no, Annie, you're our guest. You're home. And all that the Father has is bestowed to you. That means this is your, and then the whole room, they lift her up and they're like swirl around. They start redressing her just like the prodigal son, giving her a new ring, giving her a new name, teaching her how to walk in his ways and learn in his ways and hear his voice in the very intimacy of their heart. And in that relationship, we start learning what it means to not be a slave, to realize the kingdom of God is at hand and that in your life, God is real and wants to speak to you and move in your ways and lift you and transform you. He doesn't want you to lift the bucket. There's times that we yield in the spirit. Hear me, I'm not saying that we're not going to lean into those places, but it becomes from a, a posture of yielding to the spirit. And his love draws us into action. It's a different muscle. And in that kingdom, you have these, and if I had time, I would do a whole talk on inheritance. Because in his embrace, you have an inheritance of power of identity and presence, purpose, all the provisions, everything that you desire is available in your, fa- in your father's embrace. It means financial and friendships and relationships, answers to the questions of your life, desires to love deeply. The DNA of Christ is bestowed. And so we have to learn. I had a friend of mine who, um, who adopted a kid from Haiti. And when they had the meal, um, when they were eating the meal uh, at dinner, the son, because he was so used to lack, he was so used to being an orphan, he would take the food and hide it in his, in his pockets because he was afraid that there would never be enough. He was so used to working and striving and doing and tricking and trying to gain instead of realizing that the kingdom of God is here. Everything that Father has, you have in Him. And I don't know where you've been, the prodigal. I don't know where you've been, the elderly brother. But my invitation today as we end tonight is, will you come home? Will you stand there with your poverty, with your lack, your fears of your future instead of wandering the streets of England or wherever you're wandering in your heart trying to solve your problems and let the God of the universe just love you there. So I want to pray with you real quick as we end. Do I have more time? What time do I have? What time do I have? Do I have more time? Because I can go. I want you to pray with me real quick. I want you to imagine that you were coming home like the sun. Maybe you've, if you could imagine for a moment your, what you would look like in your everyday life. I want you to see what, what would you look like after a long day of work or school or maybe a relationship or 
the various things that you've been struggling with. And maybe, maybe you've been praying and you just haven't had breakthrough. Maybe there's things on your heart that you're just like frustrated with. Say, God, you need to touch this place. And you've gone out in the world and you've tried it so hard. And I want you to just walk with me home. Father, as we end with this prayer, I ask for your just mercy and your name to hear the cry of your kids. That right now as we walk home to you, I want you to imagine in your mind you're moving home. Maybe you're holding your resume or holding all the things in your hand that you've been seeking so hard to do and become. Maybe you're more the elderly brother and you're just doing the stuff. You're frustrated because everyone else seems to have the things that you don't. Or you're angry because of your past or frustrated with your parents. Or stuck in the same cycle of sin and you don't know what to do. I don't know where you put yourself in the story. But Father, as we sing this, I ask right now that you would give us a vision of your gaze upon us. I want you to step on surface right now on the stage of a long field in the distance to see a father who has been aching for you, who knows every part of your story, your fears. And I want, God, Father, I ask that you would show us the delight of the father's face right now a heart filled with wonder and excitement for a son or a daughter to come home. And I want you right now in your mind's eye and your heart to walk or maybe run to him and see a God who's already running to you first. The prodigal son in the story, the father embraces him with mercy. And as he's saying all the reasons why you shouldn't love me or I couldn't do this or all the problems that you have with your resume, he's knocking it on the ground and saying, will you just let me love you? Let me say to you the things that maybe your father never said. Let me dream with you the possibilities as you rest in me. So we're going to ask one question as we end this week and as we go into this day. And then I want you to do a worship song and let the Holy Spirit usher in. If there's people in this room that can minister, let's just pray, God, that get a word from the Father. Father, as you hold us today, as you sing over us because your son or daughter has returned, what is the one thing in our lives that we need to know as we enter into this day? What is the one truth, the one word that you have for us individually today? we need to know about the struggle in our life where are you in this I just want you to listen for like 20 seconds 10 seconds and I want you to talk to Papa